Philippians 3.17, Paul continues his exhortation, and he says, Brothers, and ladies, you're included in that, brothers, sisters, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have to often told you, and now tell you even with tears, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. One of the things I love about preaching expositionally, verse by verse, and that's the way we typically handle a passage just about every time I'm preaching, I love that when we read it through the first time, almost always there's like a, eh, unless it's one of those really just intense passages. When you read those five verses, it, you know, you might say, okay, this is the word of God, I honor the word of God. But there's not anything necessarily that's going to send you into the stratosphere just by reading those verses. But when we unpack them and the Holy Spirit brings what we pray for every week, Philippians, excuse me, Ephesians 1.17, the, the wisdom, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that revelation aspect, is something that we must be praying for ourselves because here's the thing. If all we do is approach the word of God with our minds, we can absorb a lot of knowledge, but it doesn't necessarily translate into wisdom and power for living. And so we need the Holy Spirit to bring revelation. And so what happens when we go through a text like this is that, yes, we're hearing it with our senses, we're processing it with our mind, but what we really want, and this is what I encourage you to pray for anytime you know you're going to be under the Word of God, pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to be upon you. And what that means is that it's kind of you entering into a, um, a position of receiving from the Holy Spirit. And that's when the Holy Spirit takes human words coming out of the teacher or the preacher and, and makes it into his own message to your heart. And that's what's going to happen with some of this tonight. And so let's look at it. I'm going to pick up where we left off last time, just in case you weren't here. In the first part of this message called Essentials for Victory, the, I, I gave two, um, two essentials, which was the constant heart posture of the Christian. That's when Paul said, I am forgetting those things which are behind. And I am pressing forward. I press on toward the goal for the prize call. Uh, excuse me, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul said, "I'm not going to rest in my past. I'm not going to regret my past. I'm not going to look to my past. I am pressing on to what the Lord has, and that's the constant heart posture. You have to be looking forward. If you're living in the past, you're living in a no-go zone. The Lord's not doing anything yesterday." And so you have to move forward. And so that's part of an essential for victory. The second one is this determined mindset for the Christian. And Paul says this, he says, hold on to what you have attained. Hold on to those precious elements that have brought you thus far in the Christian life 
and learn as you go. And if you hit a point, he says, if, if you, in anything you're otherwise minded, God will reveal it unto you. In other words, if you stay open and humble to the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, then those things that you're not getting that God wants you to get, you will get. And so we have this determined mindset that we're going to be constant students. Nobody in the room has graduated yet. Not a single one of us have tapped out completely all that God wants to reveal. You might have tons of letters behind your name. You may have memorized the Bible in Hebrew and Greek, and you can go up and down and back and forth with it. But I'm going to tell you something. There is room for continual, constant growth for all of us. So our, our constant mindset, our determined mindset is, Lord, feed me. I want to be a constant learner. I want to be a perpetual student even in things that have been familiar to you in seasons gone by. I promise you, if we spend an hour around John 3, 16 tonight, anybody that wants to learn something new could learn something new. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has never fully revealed that verse to you in its absolute fullness, all the dynamics. There's always something to learn. And so we've got those first two essentials for victory. Keep your heart posture pointed forward and humble to receive. And the second one is just to know that the Lord is constantly wanting to teach you. And so you have that determined mindset to be a continual learner. So I'm going to move into something that is, um, well, well, matter of fact, let me not describe it. Let me just move into it. I want to talk to you about the potential leaders of the Christian. This is an essential for your victory. Everybody in the room is following somebody or something. Everybody is. We're all being influenced. And Paul is going to talk to the Philippian church about two different types of leaders. First of all, in verse 17, he uses him, himself as one with an authentic testimony. Look at what he says. You, you may not like this, but, but we'll unpack it a little bit. He says, brothers, imitate me. Brothers, all of you together, imitate me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Now, that seems bold, doesn't it? It almost sounds a little bit arrogant, especially when, you know, matter of fact, I preached it on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. that we're not supposed to fixate and focus on other Christians. But Paul says no fewer than three times in his writings in the New Testament, he tells those that he fathered in the faith, those that he's writing instructional letters to, he tells them on three different occasions in different places, he says, I want you to follow me, I want you to imitate me, but he gives this kind of um, uh, uh, quali qualification to it. He says, I want you to follow me as I am following Jesus. And so it's not a blind fellowship to the, whoever has the position. If the woman's got the position, you must follow her no matter what she says. If the man's got the position, you must follow him no matter what he says or does. No, Paul had submitted himself fully to Jesus. He was walking in holiness. He was walking in truth. He's walking in integrity. He's walking in the spirit. He is being the person whom God has called him to be. And that's why he is able to say with no hesitation, I want you to imitate my walk. Now, brothers and sisters, we do not worship leaders. Leaders will let you down inevitably. There is no perfect human leader. There are places in my life where I would say, actually, and I'm talking about moral things. Don't let your mind wander. I'm not talking about sins and things like that. But there are places where I would say, no, instead of following me in this area, follow this person in this area. So we never want to worship one person and say, oh, this is the pinnacle of what it means to be a Christian. Everybody's flawed. Paul has already said in the verses that preceded these, I haven't attained yet. I haven't arrived yet. There's things that I'm still pressing into. But the reality is, is that at some point, if we're going to let people influence us, 
If our lives are going to be shaped and touched and nuanced by other people's influence or direct leadership over us, we need to be wise in who we pick. By the way, one of the reasons why I struggle with a little trend I see in millennial generation and younger where they are distancing themselves from local churches and they're becoming podcast junkies. And what they're doing is they're going after information, preaching, gifting, but they have nobody actually influencing their life with visible leadership. It's all about reading the latest blog, the latest book, the latest social media, or listening to the latest podcast. But you can't really imitate somebody. God has meant us to travel together as a pack. And so we are to do life together, and as we do that, there's going to be people that God will highlight in your life, and and you'll be able to see see something on them, and you'll say, I want to be like that. That looks like Jesus, but Jesus is seated in heaven, and I need somebody with skin on so I can see what it looks like, and that's, that's a person I want to imitate. Flip it a little bit. We also need to be the people whom others can imitate and mimic. You know, just, just think about this. What if everybody else's Christianity was just like yours? Is that a good thing or is that a not so good thing? To me, I would say good spots, maybe not some good spots. Maybe there's some areas that would be really beneficial, but I don't know that I would want to present my life out there for everybody to follow every single area of my life just like I do. Paul had no hesitation. It's a pretty amazing statement. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Paul had a closer walk with Jesus than I do. I don't know if that's occurred to anybody in the room, but it's true about me and it's true about you. And he was literally able to say this, but notice what else he said. He, He didn't just make it about him. He said, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example, the same example that you've seen in us. Paul had already mentioned Epaphroditus. He had mentioned Timothy earlier in the letter. And so the idea is this. As Christians... We live unto Jesus, but we need help along the way. We need leaders. We need people to influence us. And I would say this, even the strongest leader in the room is being influenced by somebody, and he or she would need to know, who is it that is influencing me? Who, who is helping me frame my thoughts? Who is, who is helping to determine my priorities? Who is representing Jesus to me, both with their words and and their life? Who is that? And Paul said, there are people in the church, always have been, always will be, that God will raise up, excuse me, and, and, and will say, look at them, follow them, because they're following my son. Position does not guarantee character. Just because a person has a position of a leader does not mean that they have the value at a high enough level that you need to assign your fellowship to. And so listen, I think this is important. Be wise. God's going to use different people in our lives in different seasons for different purposes, but ultimately there should be somebody, one or two people, that should always kind of stand out from the rest of the crowd to whom we can look to and say, that's a person whose life motivates me. That's a person that if I can follow them, I believe I'll be more like Jesus. And Paul didn't hesitate. And he he puts it out there and he says, I'm confident enough to say this in the spirit. Mimic me. Do what I do. Paul has elucidated in some of his other letters and he'd spent time with the Philippians so they knew his disciplines. They knew how he approached rest in the gospel. They understood his 
his drive to advance the gospel. They understood his personal commitment to holiness. He's also speaking of doctrinal truth, the things that he actually taught them about Jesus Christ, about what it means to walk in the kingdom. And so all of this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. And so let me just ask you this. Do you know who is the primary influencer in your Christian walk? And when I say your Christian walk, that's not, that's all of your life. That's who you are. I don't separate your Christian walk from the rest of your life. Who is influencing you as a Jesus follower? Because I think we have to be very intentional about that. So Paul is now going to get, take us into a place where it's not altogether pleasant. If you remember earlier in the study, Paul was exposing some people that he had some deep concerns about. There were some legalists that had come into the Philippian area, and Paul had caught word that they were influencing some of the people in the church. It's a little bit of a delicate subject matter, but the primary thing that these Judaizers were coming in, they were presumably Christians who were Jewish who had come and received Jesus as Messiah. That was their profession. But they had f refused to give up the, the, um, the external law of, of the, the Jewish law. They had, they had said, we're not going to back away from the ceremonial law. And so among those was the act of circumcision. And so when they would come into a Gentile town and they would find the Christians gathering there and they would say to these Gentiles where, you know, circumcision, especially at this time, was almost uniquely a Jewish uh, out external outward sign of faith, they would come into these Gentiles and they say, oh, you've accepted Jesus. Yes, we've accepted Jesus. Have you been baptized? Yes, we've been baptized. And you're following him? Yes. Have you been circumcised? And the Gentile man would say, mm, no. no not, we're not going to go there. And these guys went there and they actually exerted influence and pressure on these men to be circumcised in order to validate their Christianity. And Paul has already dealt with that. And in other places, all throughout Paul's writings, he was very much like the Lord Jesus in this way. His harshest indictments were not for the immoral people. They were not for the people that were caught up in all of the vices of the culture. Paul and Jesus went hardest against the religious imposters, those that were puffed up in what they could do for God and how proud they were in all of the things that made them right in their minds before the Lord. Well, he's going to, in my opinion, address these very same people in verses 18 and 19. So when we're talking about following people, you've got those with an authentic testimony. They're not perfect. They have flaws, but they're genuine. They're real. They're not glorified yet, but they're pressing in to the Lord. Those are the authentic ones. But here you have some with an adverse testimony. Listen to how he describes them. He says, Many of whom I have often told you, and I now tell you even with tears, many walk as the enemies of the cross of Christ. Watch this. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, you've got two schools of thoughts, uh, two schools of thought on who's Paul, who is Paul talking about here. Is he introducing a new group of people, or is he just unpacking a little further the group he had previously warned them about? Well, if he's introducing a new group of people that he's warning them about, he didn't make it overly clear. I actually believe that he's still talking about the legalists, and let me show you why as we kind of parse out these verses. He says, I've already told you about these people, 
And I'm telling you right now, and as I'm doing it, I'm weeping over them. This is the only place in all of the scriptures where you find the Apostle Paul himself weeping. It's the only time, and what is he weeping over? He's weeping over people that are serving as imposters and bringing damage to the flock on some level. So Paul, yes, he was a miracle-working, uh, a sign-giving apostle. He raised the dead, he healed the sick, he did all of those things. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, but he was also a pastor. And so when he found out that these people had moved back in, he's like, I've got to expose them again. And it didn't do his heart any good because we're going to find out these people who were in the church... And they're coming off as leaders. They're coming off as super spiritual. They're coming off as influencers. They're, they're, they're moving in a religious manipulation among the flock. And Paul is weeping over it because he knows they are wolves who look like sheep. And so he is doing the difficult thing of having to point out a type of people. And he's telling them, you need to be careful. What does he describe them in? He describes them in these terms. He says, first of all, I want you to know that these people are enemies of the cross. Now listen, they knew all the songs. They knew what to wear on the Sabbath day gatherings. They knew how to give. They were, they were big into the ritual cleansings. They, they got up and they were very disciplined in their prayer lives. They knew their scriptures. They had all of the external act together. If you met them on the street corner, you would say, what a fine specimen, specimen of Christianity that they are. But Paul says, no, I want to tell you something about them. They're actually enemies of the cross of Christ. How can that be if, if they're moral, if they're disciplined, if they're biblically informed, and if they're, they're, they're faithful in all of the duties and they look the part and they play the part, how in the world can we, I mean, let's just say they're off a little bit, but Paul doesn't do that. He says, no, they're actually in complete opposition to the cross. Do you know why? Because the cross is the place where we die to ourselves. Jesus died, Paul would write in another place, for you are crucified with Christ. We are dead in Christ Jesus. We have died. The cross is not simply an emblem of our faith. It has a literal uh, working in our own lives. The, the cross tells us we have nothing to offer, that we can't stand on our own, that we can't earn favor with God, that there's nothing we can add to it. The one upon the cross, as he hung there, it is a testimony of the fact this is the extreme that God went to to make us right with him. It took the death of his son, and how dare we add anything to that? And when we add or they add anything to that, Paul says, you're an enemy of the cross because the cross doesn't need to have man's fingerprints on it. And so Paul was intense about this thing. Can I, can I tell you something? Um, legalism seems to be cyclical. It just seems to kind of, you can call it legalism, you can call it a religious spirit. It's not just for fundamentalists. I've seen it in so many charismatics, it's pitiful. And, and it just, it has its way, it slithers in and out like a snake. And I want to tell you something. We are committed here to crush the head of that serpent when it starts moving in. We don't want to, we don't want to rest in anything other than the provision of Jesus Christ on the cross that makes us justified before God. So it's not about the baptism of the Holy Spirit or speaking in tongues. Listen, that does not make you saved. You are justified by one thing and one thing only. You are justified by your faith in Jesus Christ, for by grace are you saved through your faith. You're not saved through your water baptism. You're not saved through spirit baptism. You're not saved because you have become morally impeccable. Listen, 
all of those things have a place, but what Paul is saying here is when anybody promotes those as the means by which somebody is made right with God, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. We, we don't do that, man. We just, we try to kind of manage people like that. Just like, don't give them a Sunday school class, whatever you do. Don't, don't let them lead an in-home Bible study. Let's just let them worship and, and you know, let them come in here. And the, the attitude is this. The attitude is, well, I mean, you know, outwardly they're showing their, their commitment to the Lord. We'd never do that with somebody that came in with liberal theology. We would never for a second tolerate somebody coming in and saying, yeah, the cross of Jesus isn't necessary. We'd never tolerate that for a second. But you let a legalist come in, and you let them come in and start talking about doing a little extra to help the Lord out. And those people, you give them a front row seat. Sometimes they're in the pulpit. Paul is saying here, no, 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 no. They're the enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say something. He says this. This is unpopular teaching in our day. Um, doesn't mean it's untrue. It's just unpopular. He says their end is destruction. What does that mean? Anyone? Their end is destruction. Well, since nobody wanted to step out there, let me tell you what it means. It means if they don't repent, they go to hell. It means they are damned. Why? Jeff, again, come on, Jeff, you're, you're being too hard. Well, I'm, I'm just unpacking what Paul wrote. If they're trusting in something that they're adding to the cross, then they're not trusting in what Jesus did in the cross. You see, friends, if you believe in less than the cross, you're lost. But if you believe in plus to the cross, you're lost. And so he says this, these people who were the most pious around, if they don't repent, their end is destruction. I, again, I just feel compelled on this thing because I have encountered, I, have, I fought for years. I fought for my own spiritual life. I fought for my ministry and I battled numerous legalists. And it was so hard to feel good at it because there are moments where you're like, but they're so convinced and they're so disciplined and they're so committed and they're so outwardly devout. And, and there are times, and then you, you have to listen to what they're saying. And ultimately, their influence is this, because we're talking about people that influence, people that lead. Their influence is they prey upon other people and they make slaves out of the very people Jesus is trying to set free. They make them religious slaves. So it's, it's, it's almost like this. Yeah, you do. You need to trust in Jesus. Ask Jesus to come into your heart. But as soon as you do that, we gotcha. Now, you better fast three days a week. You, you can't go to a PG-13 movie um, you, you can never have a social drink. Don't send me emails. I'm, I'm fine wherever you stand on that, but I'm just saying. You, you, you can't, uh, listen, it got so intense. I remember, I remember fighting because we were taught that women couldn't wear pants. They couldn't wear pants. And I'm thinking to myself, how did that get into Christianity? If people are trusting in themselves, their end is destruction. Now, friends, I want to be equally clear. I believe when you are justified, your life will change and your patterns of behavior will change and your appetites will change and your desires are going to change and your, your lifestyle is going to change, but that's a result of your salvation, not the means to your salvation. 
And legalism always promotes something extra as kind of helping God out with the justification thing. He says their God is their belly. What is that referring to? I believe it's referring to the dietary laws. Paul would write in another place. I mean, Romans 14 and 15, Paul's actually having to tell people, it's okay to have a hamburger. It's okay to have bacon. It's okay. Why? Because they were fighting over the Jewish dietary laws. And the reality is this, some people were coming, being saved in Judaism unto Yeshua as Messiah. They, they had all of this tradition that was very important to them. And they were horrified when now formerly Jewish people are, are in a, a congregation with, with Gentile people and they're having a church picnic and the Gentile Christian brought a basket of bacon. And the Jewish Christian is, is mortified because it's an unclean food. And so Paul had to write chapter Romans chapter 14 and 15. He's like, okay, guys, listen. If, you, if, if your conscience won't let you eat bacon, don't eat the bacon. Don't, don't eat the bacon. But don't tell the guy who brought the basket of bacon to throw it out because it's not pleasing to God. He actually said in 2 Timothy, Paul said, all food is to be received with thanksgiving. Some of y'all may not know that. I know some Christians are like, uh, <laughs> this is a little bit of a mess of a sermon, so let's just go ahead and walk in the message. I remember Amy and Alicia. Alicia was about six. And Amy had been asked to dinner or lunch by a lady who was never a part of our church, but she was a friend of a friend. And this, girl, this lady had a daughter about Alicia's age. And they went to Red Lobster. And Alicia ordered shrimp. And shrimp is not kosher it's an unclean food and this person was never jewish but they were so convinced that some of the dietary regulations that god expressed to the jewish people in the old testament carried over and the little girl castigated my six-year-old daughter for eating shrimp to where alicia's crying at red lobster needless to say there was not a second lunch time with that that mom and daughter but the reality is this is a lot of people in the church they believe that there are dietary unclean now there's unhealthy and healthy for sure but that's not what we're talking about so paul is saying that yeah, these people are so intense on the jewish dietary law, laws that their belly their appetite their their di uh, dietary laws have become their god do you know how easy it is if you are not careful who's influencing you that you can start slipping in to those kind of nuances because you get somebody in a pulpit or on a podcast and they they can pull this scripture out and this scripture out and they put together this package that makes it sound like what they're saying is actually biblical the devil is a master at cherry picking scripture he's a master at it i can make the bible say some crazy stuff if i wanted to and so these people have come to the place where they're saying no you can't eat that and be right with god and so again, it's adding to what Jesus did. And he, ultimately, he says this. He says, they glory in their shame. In other words, everything they're so proud about. And Paul had already alluded to this in chapter 2 in his own life. All these things they were proud about, their disciplines, their ceremonial washings, their dietary laws, all of these things that they were proud about, Paul says, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. He says, they glory in those things that are actually shameful. And so this is ultimately the heartbeat of legalism. Legalism puffs up. It promotes pride. It makes you feel awesome about yourself, and you can always find somebody else that doesn't measure up to who you are in the kingdom. And it's this awful, awful disease that is, has crept into our churches. And Paul says, in the end, all of that stuff is earthly. Listen to me. 
The Bible gives you lists. New Testament, there are some things that we are not allowed to do as Christians. Let this be heard. There are sexual parameters that are binding upon believers. In case you don't know what that is, any sexual activity outside of the bounds of heterosexual marriage is sin. That's in the Bible. It's completely unpopular. God didn't change his mind in 1967. It's, it's still true. And it's just unpopular. So when, when there's a clear list in Scripture, we had better obey it. But we have to have the wisdom to know the difference between Old Testament law to the Hebrews versus New Testament moral requirements as we operate in all things as under the Lord. And so I'm not what they call an antinomian where we just say it doesn't matter what you do, the, the body doesn't matter, the, the physical world doesn't matter. I'm not expressing that. What I'm saying is this, when people start measuring your commitment to Jesus, by their self-created lists of values or disciplines or requirements. That's not anybody you need to follow. As a matter of fact, I'll be bold. If somebody's listening to this on podcast or watching it in TV, on TV, and you have a leader that is controlling you through fear and constantly measuring you by things that they set up, leave that leader today. Walk away today. I'm not talking about marriage, I'm talking about in the church, ecclesiastical leadership that tries to control you by demand and requirements that are unbiblical. You don't have to pray about it, you leave. You go and, and attach yourself to a tribe of people that are living for the glory of Jesus and not the glory of the flesh. So these potential leaders of the Christian, you may not think that that's a, an essential to victorious living, I promise you it is. Um, I love... And, and I can say this now because I am not the leader. We have many leaders in this house across the mission base, and I love what I see. I am seeing more humility among the expanded team of leaders, brokenness, repentance, prayer. I, I'm, I'm telling you, flesh can't last 15 minutes among your leadership team here. Why? Because we love each other enough, and we're either confessing it or calling it out in each other. Why? Because what God is doing right now in this season and what it's going to lead to, we, we, can, we don't have the luxury of tolerating even a, an hour of fleshly leadership. And so I'm going to encourage you, before I move on to the next point, last point, I'm going to encourage you, please pray for us. Pray for us that we would stay on our face before God, that we would stay in the book, that we would not add to, that we would not default to a, well, if we say this this way, it might generate more of this. Never. The greatest display of our love and leadership to you is to point you to Jesus and free you up of anything and everything that allows you to press into him. We don't want glory. We want him to get the glory, and we want to have the joy of helping you in your walk. Let me give you this last thing, and this will encourage you. Paul just kind of shifts gears in verse 20 a little bit. He, uh, he's told about these enemies of the cross of Christ. He says very plainly, their destiny, if they don't repent, is hell. They serve their earthly appetites. And then he goes into verse 20, and he speaks of the unfolding glory for the Christian. He speaks of this present belonging. 
He says, in contrast to those yahoos that he just described, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. I have to slow down here. This first part of verse number 20 is a verse that you need to read. You need to close your Bible. You need to push away from your desk or your table or wherever you're reading, and you just need to soak in that and, and say, it. Oh, my citizenship is in heaven. My citizenship is in heaven. I belong to heaven. My name is on the citizenry rolls of heaven. I have a king. I am a citizen of a kingdom, and my king, who has, has paid for my allegiance, and my king is Jesus Christ the Lord, and I am one of his subjects. Yes, I'm a son of the father, but when we're talking about my citizenship, while I am on earth and I'm a citizen of this planet, my primary allegiance is heavenward. This is um, becoming more and more important in the church because let me tell you, our culture is demanding that we pick a team. Uh, by the way, the Greek word translated citizenship here is a Greek word from which we derive our word politics. Look it up. Our politics are heavenly. What's happening in our culture right now, every single one of us, I don't care which way you vote, I, I honestly, right now, I just don't care. I'm telling you, this is binding on all of us. We must draw our priorities for life from the values of heaven. And the only way you can objectively learn that is in the revelation, the written word of God. That is the only way you can know what heaven values. You say, well, Jeff, does it really matter? It absolutely matters because I'm going to give an answer not for, not for being saved. Jesus has already answered that for me. I'm going to give an answer for how I lived as a saved one. And so my values, how I live, my priorities, my pursuits, all of those things, they have to be in line with my primary citizenship. And so there are times where my politics have to bow to the revelation of God's word. Even if my instinct, my natural instinct is like, oh, I kind of lean this way, I, I kind of lean this way. It doesn't really matter which way I naturally lean. I have to know what is my king's heart on these issues. And so I, I belong to a kingdom. Now, it's far beyond just the practical outflow of, you know, my priorities, my politics, and all of that stuff. It's, it's, it's much more beyond that. It, it literally reminds me every day when I wake up, this is not my place. This is not where I throw down my anchor. This is not the, this world, this culture, all of the good that's in it. God's, God's given us all things richly to enjoy, but ultimately, my identity cannot be tethered in any of it. We are, we are sojourners. We, we, we are, spiritually speaking, we are pilgrims. We're passing through. I was in Revelation 21 for about an hour today, and I'm just reading of the New Jerusalem. I'm just like, if you haven't read that, yeah, I, I want to encourage you. You just need to read Revelation 21 
because it, it almost sounds like science fiction, but it's, it's revelation, it's God's word. That literally, a city is going to descend from heaven into the earth's atmosphere, and this city is a cube measuring 1,400, approximately 1,400 miles on every side, height, width, and depth. It's going to descend from heaven at the end of the age, and you're going to live there. And I'm sitting there thinking, I have zero grid for that. I'm trying to get through traffic on 285, and I consider that a victory. And the Lord's saying, oh, you might want to lift your aspirations a little bit higher because he's going to so radically change this world. He's going to uncreate the heavens and earth and immediately recreate the heavens and earth that literally the, the eternal state is going to be lived out in some I promise you, it sounds like science fiction, but it's the Bible. That the eternal state is going to live, be lived out with, with a populated, renewed earth where there is no sea. It's a paradise. It's a garden. And then above that, hovering at some distance, is going to be the celestial city, the new Jerusalem, 1,400 by 1,400 by 1,400 miles. And it is mind-blowing. And, and somehow you and I are going to be able to transport back and forth from that. Did, any, did anybody never hear that before? Raise your hand if you've never heard any of that before. That's awesome. I'm so glad you got to hear from me. Now, go and search it out. Make sure I'm telling you the truth. I am, but make sure I'm telling you the truth. So why is that important? It's because, man, we are so locked into this kingdom. We are so prone to live as citizens of the 21st century Western American culture. And it drives us, and if we don't intentionally recognize and think, wait a minute, man, this is actually not my permanent place of roots. This is not my home. And the dynamic to say it's going to change would be the biggest understatement ever. It's, it's going to be so radically different. So, well, Jeff, I, I just can't fathom that. How are we going to exist in that? We'll go a little further. Because you can't exist in it with the mind you have now and the body you have now. But God's got that taken care of too. See, there's a promised return. Our citizen, citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. Who is that Savior? The Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know, I don't, we've got all sorts of different uh, views within our body concerning the, the chronology of the end times. I'm not here to parse that out today, but I'm going to tell you what every single one of us is waiting on. Our, our deepest hunger is to see Jesus. Nobody in here can be satisfied until we see Jesus. No Christian in here can be satisfied. So whether you are pre-trib or post-trib, mid-trib, wh whatever you find yourself, I'm telling you, your, your aha, your, your full spiritual exhale is not going to come until your eyes behold him. And the Bible says we're waiting for him. We're waiting for him. The promise of God is that his son will come again. And there are indicators all throughout Scripture that describe the generation that will be alive in that season in which Jesus returns. And I know many other generations before ours have said the exact same thing. But I'm telling you, when, when we see the things that are going on globally, and when you read the back of your Bible and you see the things that are going to happen prior to the return of Jesus Christ globally, Never has there been a generation where it is more clear that those indicators are popping one by one. 
from what goes on in the heart of man to what's going on in the economic and geopolitical realm. All of that stuff is just kind of manifesting. Jesus said, look, you know when you how to look at the sky and know when the storm is coming, but can you not discern the signs of the times around you? And so I believe, friends, with all of my heart, I fully expect the return of Jesus in my lifetime. I am today 48 years old, and I believe that before my life is over on earth, that the second coming of Jesus Christ will hit planet earth. I believe that. And, and as a citizen of that kingdom, I'm saying, yes, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly, come suddenly, come, Lord. So we're longing for that. We're awaiting him. So whatever is nagging at your soul in this season, whatever you're overly anxious about, whatever is just kind of eating away at your peace and all of that, can I just say, lift up your eyes unto the hills from whence cometh your help. He's coming again. He's coming. That's not just a pat on the head saying, cheer up, brother. I'm telling you, man, that's the radical invasion of heaven into earth that at the core of our being, that's what we want. That's what we're longing for. And so the last verse, made it through, hallelujah. The last verse, verse 21. So it's a promised return, a present belonging, and a perfect body. Come on, Lord. Here we go. Who will transform, speaking of Jesus, our lowly body, literally the body of our humiliation. <laughs> the Bible is so true, goodness. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things unto himself. So I want to encourage you as we get ready to go. The Bible actually speaks quite a bit about this. We joke around a little bit of it, but it's, it's really not a joke. Um, when you trusted in Jesus Christ, there was a redemption that occurred in your spirit. You are justified. You are born again. You are saved. You are redeemed. But the Bible also communicates that there is a fuller redemption that includes the redeeming of this body of flesh that literally when we behold Jesus Christ, that there will be a transformation of your temple, of your tabernacle. A couple of things, we're, we're approaching Easter, and I think, yeah, I'm preaching both services Easter Sunday morning. I'm going to preach two different messages, but they both include post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. It's a couple of interesting things. One he didn't look exactly like he looked when he was uh, pre-crucified, pre-resurrection. As a matter of fact, there were moments where people didn't recognize him. There was something about him that was veiled or different because he didn't look exactly the same. And yet when they heard him speak or when he opened their eyes to behold him, they said, it's the Lord. But you remember also that his glorified body could move in ways that his former body as the son of man was not able I mean, they're having a prayer meeting. They're hiding because they're afraid they're about to be the next ones crucified. And Jesus just passes through the door. Doesn't that encourage anybody? I don't know what to do with it, but I'm like, I'll take that. I'm, I'm cool with that. that, that and, and literally, when it was time for Jesus to go back to the Father, um, he's just like, okay, guys, God bless you. Go tarry in Jerusalem. And, and whoop, he goes straight up. And, and they're all, they're all, they're literally looking into the clouds and 
you know, they're saying, what, what happened? And angels have to say, yeah, he's, he's actually gone. He, he'll be back. He's going to come back the same way you just saw him go up, but he's gone. Quit looking up into the sky. He, he's not, he wasn't subject to the law. And that, by the way, that's not simply because he was divine. It's because he was living in the same body he's in tonight. The same body that he ascended off of that hill and went back and sat down at the right hand of the Father. He's in that same body. And John says, when we see him, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So you're going to get, hallelujah, a glorified body. Listen, you'll, you'll have a glorified body to live in a glorified new Jerusalem that I'm, I can't even... I don't even want to try to explain the dynamics of the eternal state. I'm just telling you, it's, it's not going to be like life on earth 1.1. It's, it's going to be a complete overhaul, and your body will never get sick again. Even if there were sickness in existence, it couldn't get in your body. Every wound, every pain, every limp, every affliction, every malady, I won't need these anymore, and this little thing on the back of my head called a bald spot, gone. I've already asked the Lord, I want to be six foot five, I want long flowing black hair, and I want a six pack of abs. Make it a 12 pack, please. You know, I mean, I joke a little bit, but why not? I mean, <laughs> the reality is, is that it, it's going to be an, a glorified body because your natural body can't handle his glory. That's why we need the body. It's not just so we can feel better, but we will. But the, the reality is, no man can see God and live. And the new Jerusalem has no lights in it. You know why? Because it is illuminated. There's no night there. It's illuminated constantly by the glory of God. And your body that you're in tonight would just go, blah, 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 it would melt. And so he's going to give you a glorified body. And friends, we're going to be, at the very least, exactly like Adam and Eve were in the garden pre-fall. A lot of people, a lot of scholars believe when, when the Bible says that they knew they were naked after they sinned, it's not just speaking of physical nudity, but they, their glory, they lost the glory off of themselves because they had sinned. Um, we are the sons of glory. We're the sons of glory. God has glory for you. It is imparted glory. It is purchased glory. It is imputed glory, but it's real. And so we're going to press on through all of these physical weaknesses. Included in that, I got 60 seconds. Included in that is the faculties. Your mind, will ne you'll never be depressed again. You'll never feel lonely again. You'll never be afraid again in an unhealthy way. Um, there'll be no anxiety. There'll be no schizophrenia. There'll be no bipolar. There'll be no medications. There'll be no need for any of that. You will, listen to me, he can't be done with you until you are perfect. You're not going to get tweaked. So when you say, what are we going to be doing in heaven, man? I mean, you know, 20 years in heaven, aren't we going to be done? We just listen. It's another thing you take by faith. We have no clue of the immeasurable glory of God. And the best I can tell from Scripture, the immeasurable, endless ages. Matter of fact, there's no time in the eternal state. God says we don't need that anymore. It's just you and Him and the saints of God, the bride of Christ, wedded to her bridegroom forever and ever and ever. That's your destiny, child of God. 
So let's live like that as the citizens of that kingdom. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. It's a lot better than talking more about the legalist, isn't it? That's the thing about going verse by verse. You've got to cover all of it. Father, thank you for encouraging us and just reminding us on a Wednesday what you have for us. We don't get it. I don't even pretend to. I just know that you're so good that it is going to... I don't have vocabulary for it. It's you. It's just you, Lord. Thank you that you care enough for us not only to save us from our sin through the blood and the sacrifice of your son, but thank you, Lord, that you bring all your sons and daughters into your glory, that we get to be with you forever. Remind us of that this week. In Jesus' name, amen.